I'm Ruth Austin, and this is a Cockdoe Ramble in Soho, London. In November 1959, Jean Cocteau came to London for rehearsals of a revival of the opera Oedipus Rex and to paint a mural in the French Roman Catholic Church of London, Notre Dame de France, just off Leicester Square on Leicester Place. Jean Cocteau, who was born in 1889 and died in 1963, was a poet, playwright, filmmaker, librettist, choreographer, ceramicist, novelist, essayist, illustrator. Cocteau referred to himself in French as a poet, a poet, and his work as poésie, to say poetry. The use of this one term, poetry, as a catch-all here arguably serves as a way of unifying his work and perhaps in doing so detracting somewhat from his critics. After all, Cocteau was known as a touche-à-tout, a finger in every pie, a jack of all trades, and the suggestion there, of course, of being a master of none. In the Church of Notre-Dame de France, we have an example of another area of his work. In this case, his chapel murals. Another starting point for this walk are the diaries of Cocteau published as Le Passé Défini, and in this case we'd be looking at volume six, being the one that covers his short trip to London in November 1959. He was also in London with his longtime collaborator Stravinsky to supervise and perform in a revival of their opera Oedipus Rex. This time in concert form and to be broadcast on the BBC radio live from the relatively new Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank. An important performance in that it returns Cocteau to his position as artistic collaborator with Stravinsky. The libretto had been, after all, the starting point for the composition of the music but translations and future performances somewhat overshadowed the significant role Cocteau had in the work. Arriving in London, he had just completed filming what would turn out to be his final film, The Testament d'Orphée. This is also the final film in what can be considered as his Orphic trilogy. So from the Song d'un Poète in 1930 to Orphée, in 1950. Exhausted on his arrival in November 1959, he writes about the work which he has been doing before coming to London and what he has ahead of him. As he points out in his diary, both he and Stravinsky are thought of as being ageless, but given that their combined ages comes to over 150 years, he notes that they are both in fact feeling far from ageless. He also is worried about not speaking the language. He never quite got the hang of English, something he also laments in an earlier volume of the diaries when he travels to Oxford in 1954 to receive his honorary doctorate. It was on that trip that he had first been approached by the French embassy to decorate the Church of Notre-Dame de France. His trips to London were few and far between over his lifetime. And he recalls in his diary from 1959, 
from Zone Poetry, published in his collection Plenchon in 1925. His recollection from an earlier um, trip. London, heart of coal, poppy red bricks, where one sleepwalks. The notion of experiencing the city as a somnambulist, being a familiar way of Cocteau approaching the city as a nocturnal space and also space for creativity. But now we can start our walk. So in Leicester Square, we can stand on the corner on the north side where we have Leicester Square and Leicester Place. And here we can look back to a previous visit from Cocteau to London. In Leicester Square, we have the location for the performance of one of Cocteau's most celebrated works for the stage, Parade or Parade. And we are reminded of the music halls and theatres which preceded the cinemas here. It was in the Empire Leicester Square, formerly the Empire Theatre, that Parade was first performed in London. This had been created by Cocteau in response to Diaghilev's instruction to him, astonish me. His response was indeed an astonishing work of collaboration. Music by Eric Satie, costumes and sets by Picasso, choreography by Leonid Massine, program notes by the poet Apollinaire, in which we have what is usually recognised as the first recorded use the word surrealism. So how to describe it? The first cubist ballet, the costumes worn by the dancers are cubist and appear to be impossible to dance in. So perhaps score famously includes a typewriter along with other noise-making machines. But it is a significant event in ballet history it brought together the high art of the ballet with the low art of street performance and the music hall and placed Cocteau very much at the forefront of the avant-garde. First performed in Paris in 1917, it came to the Empire Theatre in 1919. And it formed part of a series of performances given by the Ballet Russe across a number of venues most in this area, with the Colosseum just over there on St. Martin's Lane, along with the Empire Theatre and then the Alhambra, which is now mostly covered with the Odeon Leicester Square. Picasso at the time had come with Cocteau to supervise the set decorations. And it was from this series of performances of the Ballet Russe that the work of Picasso, along with that of Cocteau, made a mark on the London art scene and influenced collaboration on the London stage as well. Working with Picasso was Vladimir Pulinin, who would go on to set up the set design course at the UCL Slade in the 1920s. It is also in Leicester Square that we find the statue of Charlie Chaplin, for a while it had been located outside Notre-Dame de France, but has now returned to the square. Cocteau wrote on the importance of Chaplin in filmmaking and met him on a number of occasions, including on his voyage around the world. For, although Cocteau was known for not being a great traveller, 
there is one particular departure from this when in 1936 he recreated Jules Verne's voyage around the world in 80 days with his lover at the time Marcel Kiel accompanying him as a sort of passepartout the trip was initially serialized in the newspaper Paris Soir and then published in book form. Simon Callow, in the introduction to the English translation, observes that it would be strange to imagine an equivalent series of articles appearing, say, in the Evening Standard at the time, given that it includes details of trips to opium dens on the journey. But it is also on that voyage that he has a chance encounter with Charlie Chaplin, who was traveling with his wife, Paulette Godard, and his entourage on a ship from Hong Kong. The versions of the encounter are rather different depending on whether you read Chaplin or Cocteau's account. But nevertheless, it is a reminder that it was indeed Chaplin who had said that only France could have ever created someone like Cocteau, who worked across the arts with equal success. We can now go back up to Leicester Place, leaving Leicester Square behind us. And here we are at Notre Dame de France. This church was built on the site of Robert Barker's The London Panorama, which is a precursor in many ways to the Magic Lantern shows and early cinema. The London pa Panorama then be replaced with a church for the French Roman Catholic population of London in 1865. Cocteau decorated a number of churches, chapels and public and private places towards the latter part of his life. But this is the only decoration in London and in many ways is his most simple from amongst these examples of other chapels um, or at least one could think of it as the least elaborate. I should perhaps add here that in his diary entry from the time, he decides that this is clearly the ugliest church in the world. One of the things you will see on viewing the side chapel, it's on the left of the church as you've come in from the street, is the relatively small area he was asked to decorate. There was no opportunity, for example, for him to design church windows, something he had done um, in examples you can find in, in um, French chapels. And much of the restoration and regeneration work on the church following the bombing during the Second World War had already been completed at the point when Cocteau was invited to decorate the side chapel. And it's worth noting that the chapel was once again restored in 2012 after some general fading, some water damage, and also some graffiti, which had been added in response to the growing idea, we have Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code to thank for this, that the mural made references to the Grand Priory of Sion, of which Cocteau was a Grand Master, again, according uh, to the Da Vinci Code. The decoration is immediately recognizable as being by Cocteau, the simplicity of the uninterrupted lines being one indicator. I recollect seeing a film of him demonstrating to an interviewer by borrowing her lipstick and drawing on glass without lifting the lipstick once, emphasizing this style 
of drawing where the form emerges from a continuous and uninterrupted line. And now for the panels, there are three um, and they are as follow. There is the Annunciation. This is when Mary is told by the angel Gabriel that she will conceive the Son of God, Jesus. The Assumption, that is when Mary is carried in bodily form to heaven. And then the Crucifixion. Although recognisable as the Crucifixion, the emphasis is on the brutality of the soldier soldiers alongside the compassion and suffering of the women who wait at the foot of the cross. The three Marys, Mary, mother of Jesus, to whom the chapel is dedicated, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Clopas. But on viewing this crucifixion, it's only the legs of the crucified Christ that are initially seen. It's unusual and a rather striking representation of the crucifixion because of this and not forgetting of course Cocteau himself who appears in self-portrait at the foot of the cross. On leaving the church we can turn right along Leicester Place heading north towards Lyle Street. From his diary entries, his greatest concern on returning to London on this visit is about the Americanization of the architecture, um, or what he calls the Americanization, which seems to be a reference to sort of the concrete buildings that are emerging and the high rises in London. He also laments the terrible traffic, which he insists is so much worse than Paris. Although this lament regarding traffic may be partly because of the route he's taken on every morning from Claridge's to Notre Dame um, in a car provided by the French embassy. But regarding the city, his worry is that it will only be in Dickens and the fiction of Peter Cheney that the old Soho will be found, with the low-rise buildings being replaced by skyscrapers. But all these decades on, looking towards Lyle Street, low-rise buildings still survive in these narrow streets. Continuing down Lyle Street, we can now turn right, heading north up Wardour Street. It's worth stopping here at Gerrard Street, which is on turns to the right from Wardour Street, where we have an example of the Dickensian London descriptions um, that Cocteau was so fond of. For it was here that Mr. Jaggers, in great expectation, lives in a house on the south side of the street, which as Dickens writes, is rather a stately house of its kind, but dolefully in want of painting and with dirty windows. We then continue Wardour Street towards the junction with Shaftesbury Avenue. Left on Shaftesbury Avenue is the location of the old Hong Kong restaurant, now long gone, which Cocteau goes to on this visit. He'd kept all his meals quite local to the area during his time, avoiding the press and the crowds as best he could. But his celebrity status had been reaffirmed on this trip with reports that a barrier had to be erected in the church in Notre Dame whilst he worked, 
because of the number of visitors trying to catch a glimpse of him at work and photographers and newspaper journalists wanting to interview him. Turning right on Shaftesbury Avenue, can walk and cross over and along and up Dean Street. As we head up Dean Street, we see Romilly Street on the right and number 27, formerly a restaurant, the Moulin d'Or, again a French restaurant, which he also frequented and one already familiar to him and known to the Ballet Russe and his other collaborators from earlier trips to London. We can continue up Dean Street and towards Old Compton Street and on the corner there you see the French house where de Gaulle during the Second World War met with the Free French Forces and supposedly it was here that he wrote his famous address after the fall of France, A tous les Français, which begins with the now familiar line, La France a perdu une bataille, mais la France n'a pas perdu la guerre. France has lost the battle, but not the war. And thinking of this rallying cry of French resistance, one is reminded that Cocteau had remained in occupied Paris during the war in what was a particularly productive artistic period for him in some ways, but not one without a legacy of controversy, particularly because of his public association with the German sculptor Arno Brecker, who had a major exhibition in Paris in 1942. One could think of the public works and commissions, such as the painting of Notre Dame, in terms of a restoration of his reputation in some ways. The following year in 1960, his design of Marianne, the emblem of the French Republic, would appear on French postage stamps. But back to our walk, we can then continue north up Dean Street, turning right onto Old Compton Street and continuing along until we turn left up Greek Street and approach Soho Square, which would be where we end our walk. But just before we arrive at the square, don't miss the side street, which leads to Charing Cross Road, once called Rose Street and now renamed Manette Street in reference to Dickens again, this time Dr. Manette from A Tale of Two Cities. You could walk down Charing Cross Road towards the Colosseum, where Cocteau's ballets had been performed by the Ballet Russe. But for today, we will continue along to Soho Square. The north side of Soho Square is the location of another French church in London, this time the Protestant Church. The current building dates back to the 1890s, but the church community dates back to the 1550 and the Huguenots who were given exile here. It is perhaps not surprising that Cocteau, who so often explores the nocturnal city in his work, would take Dickens's description of London streets and architecture as the one that he would seek out. Given that Dickens himself, who excelled in his depiction, depiction of the hidden nocturnal side of the capital. It was only a few years following from this trip that Lon from to London that Cockdale died in October 1963. In fact, he's buried beneath the floor of the Chapelle Saint-Blaise des Simples in Milly-la-Forêt, another example of one of the chapels 
that he had decorated and had only recently completed before his death. So I'll take that as our end point. Here we are just 10 minutes now back to the Bloomsbury campus of UCL. And I hope you enjoyed the ramble. <laughs>